Coming home well. I'm your host, Dr. Tyler Piron, and today we have a very special guest, Brigadier General Michael P. Downs, retired of the United States Marine Corps, and he's been out of the military for a while, so he's done his own transition. But we are going to go and revive our history sessions. We were doing some last year. I was able to find out some amazing things about the Vietnam War and the Battle of Way City. And General Downs was a captain during the Battle of Way City and had a front row seat to this iconic battle that went on for months. Uh, we often think battles is just a few days. This went on for months in an urban area, lots of conflict. And we had a sort of similar thing in Iraq and Fallujah, but it's nowhere near the type of fighting that they were having in South Vietnam and North Vietnam during the Battle of Way City. Welcome to the show, General Downs. Thank you. So I want to know, what is the Battle of Way City and how did it happen? Well, it would have been good if the leadership, the American leadership in Vietnam knew that question. Back in 1968, the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong elements took over Way City with that, with the exception of two spots. One was the division headquarters of the 1st Armored Division on the Citadel side of the city, and the other was the Military Advisory Command Vietnam headquarters in the south side of the city, south of the Wong River, the Perfume. And they took over the city without any real knowledge on the part of senior American leadership. The first American units that entered way entered on the 31st of January into an intense uh, combat environment. That was 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, minus with uh, Alpha Company of that battalion, plus a Golf Company of the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. On the 1st of February, our company... Fox Company, Foxtrot Company, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines was flown into way on helicopters. The information was sparse. We were told that uh, just to go to report to the CO of 1-1, that, that's 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, and that we would probably be there three or four days. Three or four days? They had no idea what was happening, did they? They had no idea. And you wonder uh, about that. But uh, nonetheless, our company landed in helicopters just south of the probably 300 meters from the MACB compound. And uh, this would have been early afternoon on the 1st of February. And uh, we immediately were sent on a mission to relieve some American military and uh, civilian advisors who were holed out in a building some four blocks away. And we didn't get very far. In fact, we got less than a block. And during that afternoon, in our company alone, we had just a minute. On the 1st of February, we had four Marines killed, four Marines and Navy corpsmen, and 13 that afternoon. And it accomplished 
practically nothing. And there wasn't much progress made while we had actions uh, each day on the 2nd, the evening of the 1st, and on the 2nd. On the 3rd of February, the battalion command group of the battalion that that I was permanently a member of, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines arrived, and his name was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ernest Cheatham. Uh, If you read uh, Way 1968, you'll find the author thinks very highly of his contributions, as do all of us who were fortunate to have been in his command. And things started to happen on the 3rd of February, and the mission that that the battalion had and our company was leading it was the Vietnamese Treasury Building, which was only uh, one block other side of the street from the advisory command headquarters. We didn't progress very much on the 3rd, but on the 4th, things happened and that building was taken. And I can say that we made a regular progress through the 11th of February when the southern portion of Way, the new Way as it was referred, was fully in, in the hands of the Vietnamese. You know, sir, it's, it's just shocking to me that we had the Tet Offensive. I mean, that's sort of like everybody knows every movie about Vietnam talks about the Tet Offensive, but it was a all the way across the country of Vietnam, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese went into the cities and just took over. And we were blind. We had no idea what was happening until all this fighting occurred. And I can't imagine a, a company of Marines, never mind all the other forces, not being able to move a block. That must have been some tremendous fighting. Well, they occupied buildings and it took us a, a good while to sort of change our frame of reference from our experiences have been up till then, which was uh, rice patties, small villages and canopied hilltops. And so it was quite a different picture to come into a a place where the enemy certainly had protected positions within buildings to fire from and even little small walls around the building courtyard that they used for firing positions as well. So it took us a while, a couple days uh, to get adjusted. By the time Lieutenant Colonel Cheatham arrived, we thought we sort of knew how to do this. But our company was given an order on the night of 1st of February to conduct a night attack to the province headquarters and jail. And fortunately, through some effort, that order was rescinded. How far away was that? How far away was the jail from you? It was six blocks. And to put it in perspective, our battalion took the province headquarters and the jail on the 6th of February. So a full week later. Well, it's five days, yes. And it was just further evidence of, of a lack of understanding on the part of those higher headquarters not in the city who were issuing orders based on erroneous or ill-informed info. So that's a really good point. I would like to dig in that a little bit. So the people that were issuing the orders, the tactical orders, weren't even on the ground? No, of course not. I would say certainly the battalion commanders are on the ground. But up until the third, the highest uh, U.S. Marine on the ground was a lieutenant colonel. On the 3rd of February, in addition to more of his battalion coming and our more of our battalion with Lieutenant Colonel Cheatham, a regimental command came, uh, a colonel by the name of Hughes, who took over all 
responsibility for all marine actions in way from then until the end. So at first, they really didn't know what the enemy forces were. They just had missions. Hey, go get the jail. Go secure it. Go secure the headquarters. You'll be back in a few days. But that wasn't even close to the case. No, that's correct. I personally believe that had we had we executed that order, I, I doubt very much I'd be here talking to you today. So when you fight in cities, and, and there's been a lot of study and a lot of effort in fighting in urban environments, after the way engagement, it's still a very challenging environment because it's not just lateral or get the high ground on the top of a hill. There's buildings, there's basements, there's fortifications, and you can't see the enemy until they light you up. So how did you change tactics to, to overcome and win? Well, this is when you have to have uh, great pride and respect for the Marines themselves and the training that has gone on in the armed forces. And I speak to, for the Marine Corps for a long, long period of time. And we're always taught to have to adjust to the circumstances that, that you're now facing. And our Marines did that. They did adjust and they did it. To, uh, their actions always involved risk risk of, of injury or even death. And their willingness and aggressiveness in, in doing that was certainly inspiring. And let me confirm for me that the Marines of 1968 were up to the challenge of living up to the legacy of those who had preceded us in the Corps. Now, many of these were drafted, right? Well, I, to be honest with you, can't couldn't tell you how many in our company had been drafted, but I believe it was very few. That's not to say that there weren't there was drafting going on during those 67, 68, but but most of the uh, Marines were volunteers. But the truth is, it didn't matter. They had gone through the training, and there was no distinction made between a draftee or a enlistee, and you couldn't tell them apart. Once you're a Marine, you're a Marine, right? That's it. So you have this battle, you're sent on helicopters, dropped off at these headquarters and said, here's some missions. And at one point you pushed back on the jail mission and said, that's suicide. That's, that's just not going to work. Did you have all the support that you could, our air cover, artillery, all the supporting fires? No, for the first days in the city, uh, we were prohibited from using any indirect fire weapons. And there was a major concern for the integrity of the buildings so as to not destroy them. The weather was such that air was never really a factor for those of us on the south side of the river. And the majority of the weapons used during that portion, let's say uh, through the 11th, were integral to a Marine battalion. That's 81 millimeter mortars, 106 recordless rifles, 60 mortars, 3.5 rocket launchers, the light armored anti-attack weapons, M16 rifles, M60 machine guns, hand grenades, and the, the like. That's And so we, in fact, during those first days, fought the enemy on sort of equal grounds. They had very similar weapon systems available to them. And we take some pride in the fact that while armed armament-wise, we were 
equally armed, there were no uh, challenge for us in the long haul. We, we won every skirmish. So, yeah, you've got equal weapons, but I've always been taught if you go into a uh, combat and it's a fair fight, you didn't plan well enough. <laughs> yeah. You know, plans go to heck, but planning is everything, and you never want to go in, into combat and make it a fair fight. You want to win decisively. So I, I'm really curious. You get dropped off in helicopters, so that means you don't have the heavier support, the vehicles, or do they come later? Well, the Marine Rifle Company at that time had one Jeep and some what we call mechanical mules, which were mostly for us used to carry supplies. The mechanical mule was also the uh, mobile platform for the 106 recordless rifle. But that was uh, headquarters and service company had that. The rifle companies didn't. So we didn't go in with any uh, vehicles. We went in with what we carried on our backs. And we didn't even have packs. We were flown in, as I said, our packs were down south south of uh, Fubai, which was about 15 or 20 miles away. So how did you get resupplied? That must have been, you don't even have your rucksacks full of gear and you're not ready for a a prolonged engagement. So you must be burning through ammo like really fast. I must admit that for however it was done, I don't know, but the resupply was very good. And as it turned out, most of our fighting was during the day, and we used the night to resupply food, ammo, and stuff, and it was readily available. The only uh, item that had some shortage for a period was hand grenades, and uh, folks in the battalion, even the chaplain, would make certain that casualties coming back through, uh, if they had any hand grenades, they, they took the hand grenades off them so they could be redistributed. But we were well supplied with what we needed. And the enemy was probably doing the same thing during the evening. It's no longer a 24-hour fighting oh. cycle like we think of now with night vision goggles. None of that even existed. Well, they didn't have the logistic support network that we did. And I'm sure to say they were running short on things that they needed as that battle continued. That's a really important point about the importance of logistics, because that's how you win wars. It's, It's the train of fuel, ammo, medical, all those other things that you need to get it to the front when you need it. So they were able to capture the city and it was a long fight. Now, I I think the fight went on until March. Is that right? Yeah. First, let me just say that to use the word near taking of the city is would suggest that it was with a fight. They occupied the city. They didn't capture it. There, There wasn't a major armed engagement when they came in. They came in at night and they owned the city except for those two spots that I mentioned to you. And that's a really important point because there was a lot of things going on. A lot of people were basically on vacation, like we would go Christmas leave, but that well, they were on Tet leave, right? That's correct. And so a lot of the people that would normally be involved were back home, not in the environment. And so they were able just to walk right in. And up until that period, Way was a pretty safe place. And so just to suggest that they had any anticipation of something of this import and consequence occurring in way during Tet was not so. It just was, it surprised the Vietnamese as it surprised the American. 
So there wasn't really any fighting going on in Tet prior to that. It was a pretty safe, normal city. And all of a sudden, it's like ground zero. Yeah, I mean, to say I didn't enter way until 1 February, and oh, you mentioned when did it end. Our company drove out of way on trucks on the 9th of March, and the only company of the battalion that was, and in fact, the only Marine companies that were there earlier were Alpha 1, 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, and Golf, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, who came in on the 31st. I don't know when Alpha 1 1 left. Golf company left on the 10th. They came out away on the 10th. We, in effect, it was the fighting was over a few days before that, a week maybe before that. Our last casualties in our company were on the 3rd of March. So you get there, and it's, it's a full-on battle from the moment you arrive until about the 2nd, 3rd of March. Yeah, I mean, uh, to say every day was as intense as the next, would not be so, but we were in a dangerous situation all those days. That sounds like some significant combat. There is a lot of people on both sides that were either injured or killed. Do you remember the uh, totals on the uh, the friendlies and the enemies? Well, I just what I read on the on the enemy and on the friendlies. The only thing I'm absolutely certain of is the casualties in our company. I have a casualty book that I kept, we had some engagements south of Fubai on the 30th and 31st of January, Tet effectively started. And so I kept casualties from the, in this book, killed and wounded from the 30th of January until the last one, as I said, on the 3rd of March, actually 2nd of March. The total in our company for those days were 23 men killed and 189 additional wounds. The 189 is not people because some of it is the same person more than once. And in fact, in one case, a individual Marine who had been wounded was later killed in another in another engagement. So those figures are certain of. So how many people were in your company, just for context? And for context, we went into the city with our attachments, company attachments, with 213 Marines and sailors. Now, we got some, we've evacuated people frequently, and we received replacements. But I would say to you that when you take the numbers of people, when, when I reduce to those who more than once, for example, we had one Marine who was WIA and later KIA. We had four Marines who were wounded three times in the city. We had 27 Marines who were wounded two times. So when I count people in way, it was approximately 165. So I figure that to be about 75% of our company at one time or other was either uh, killed or wounded. That's just amazing. I mean, if we had a battle with a 75% casualty or injury rate today, it'd be the front page. But we've been in combat operations for 20 years. And I think there's about 2,000 or so in Iraq that were killed. But that is way different than a month and a week of battle, constant of room to room, building to building. Now, I'm really curious. They had this restriction on they didn't want the buildings blown up or damaged. That must have been that's a crazy restriction in in a war. 
Yeah, it, it is. And the discussions and decisions on that matter were far above my pay grade. But I know that the regimental commander who came in on the 3rd of February with our battalion commander told him that if you even suspect there is enemy in the building, blow it down. So the restrictions ended relatively quick. A problem that existed for the entirety of it almost was the poor weather. Yeah, you mentioned that, the flights, and you couldn't get in because of the weather, not being able to get air support. What was the weather like? It was rainy, cloudy, and for Vietnam at that time, cold. Another thing that is important to understand, and I think that book that I mentioned to you earlier, Away 1968 by Bowden, is really, really covers this very well. From the Marines, there were two battles. There was South Way, south of the Perfume River, or the Song Wan, and the Citadel side. Our battalion was not in the Citadel side. That was a South Vietnamese and the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines battle. And the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines didn't arrive there until the 13th of February. So we had been engaged south of the city for a couple of weeks. And and then by by the time of the 13th, we owned the south of the city. And we had an American flag flying from the province headquarters, which was on our south side. The jail was on our south side. The hospital was on our south side. The post office. So that was what was referred to as New Way, and that was where the South Vietnamese civilian leadership had their headquarters building. But And then what Bowden writes about, there was also some substantial efforts by U.S. Army units that weren't directly in the city, but they were on approaches to the city. And in there, it wasn't combat in cities for them, but they had all that they could handle as well. And the that's when I think before we got on, mentioned that what that book taught me was what a limited point of view that I had, frame of reference. And, and I learned so much for what else was going on. I mean, goodness knows, I didn't know sometimes what was going on in one of the sister companies of our battalion, which were just 25 yards to my left or right. It is amazing to think of that with the, the modern comms and all the ways that we can keep track of things with overhead and we can see everything occurring. I understand that there was sometimes they would send in helicopters and try to direct battles that way. But obviously with the weather, that wasn't happening. Yeah, I mean, there were actually some benefits from a command and control point of view at the company level. And that is the company commander could get into a position in a building overlooking the street, the grounds that the platoon lead elements about to cross and observe it all in a relatively safe position because you're in a building. And for communications within the company for, well, when we took the treasury building, we did that with CS gas and we were at gas masks on and, and sometimes that hampers radio communications, your ability to talk through the handset. But we didn't have trouble communicating within the company or even for one company commander to communicate with his uh, fellow company commanders. And we would do that on the battalion tactical net and the battalion commander would be monitoring it. And so we had pretty good calm. But I would say your whole focus was what was in front of you and what was in front of our Marines. 
you must have yeah, seen some was- really neat ingenuity by these Marines coming up with ways to do things that they weren't trained to do, but they got the mission done. That's that's correct. I remember you telling a story about trying to cross a road or cross a block, and these Marines came up with this really ingenious way to provide cover. Well, I think who you heard say that was uh, Ron Christmas, who was the company commander of Hotel Company. But because he's talked about that a lot, it's not that, that I didn't experience it as well. But especially going into the Treasury Building, it took us a while to realize that the casualties that we were occurring in the street between us and the Treasury were the result of uh, enemy machine gun fire coming from outside of our battalion sector right down the street from my left. And it was coming from with the map that uh, we have now. And I look and look at a map and point out what building they were in. But the 106 recordless rifle handled by the battalion and coming out of hotel company zone ended up firing right down the front of us. I mean, those 106 rounds couldn't have been more than 15 yards, 10 yards in front of our lead Marines going right down our front. And then we used smoke or or regular smoke to sort of hide movements. But actually, during that first building, the Treasury building was the first major objective of our battalion, and and it was a tough one. What made it so tough? It's a a two- or three-story building that they occupied and had managed points looking right across. And as I said, they they had flank and fire from a machine gun coming right down the street that we were trying to cross coming from the left. That machine gun was probably 800 yards away from where I was. And a treasury building is probably a pretty sturdy building. Yeah, it's very thick masonry walls and two or three, I mean, probably three counting attic stories. It's a very structurally sound uh, building. So they have the uh, the high ground, they have flanking fire, they have yes. a dug-in position. And so we used uh, 106s, we used 81 millimeter mortars that were, they were, they were firing from what was then a part of Way University. It was in a little compound right next to the building that I was in. And those 81 mortars were total distance from the m- muzzle of the mortar to the roof of the treasury building was not more than 40 yards. That's danger close by anybody's. That's a very high arc in order to even get to land that close. Yeah, I'm told that it looked like it was going straight up from those who were could observe the mortars. We couldn't. But so those were the weapons and eventually we wore them down. And I believe that gas had a great deal to do with it. Because the mortars would keep them down, not be able to shoot from the roof, but they would be yeah. shooting from the windows and the other openings, and they had yeah. machine gun fire. Yes. And, and of course, we had machine guns and rocket launchers and the 106 recoilless rifles, so it wasn't like they were, were getting away scot-free. Now, how many people were involved on the enemy side, your estimate, like in the Treasury Building fight? I don't know. No, and I. That's a fair answer. Yeah, and I would say this: Bowden interviewed a lot of what were enemy. Well, he interviewed some of what were enemy, including 
a young teenage girl who led NVA forces in the dark into the city on the 30th and 31st of January to occupy it. She was not a friendly, she was a anti-South Vietnamese government disposition. And he interviewed her and he interviewed the individual who was reputedly the unit commander of that faced our battalion. And I mean, he doesn't go into any great detail, but I would say, interesting to me, that battalion, that uh, commander, NVA commander, didn't say anything that was contradictory to what my observations or experiences were. So he wasn't making themselves out to be something other than what they were. Time and space probably helps with that. Yeah. And, and of course, he was the interview was conducted in probably in way itself and 50 years later and they owned it. <laughs> right. So. They won. So that, that certainly allows them to be a little more freely speaking than they normally would have. Probably that, that they won. That's an interesting deal. Mark Bowden used to use that term. And we again thought of things in a more restricted fashion. And I say that when we arrived, our company arrived at Way on the 1st of February, they owned the city. By the 11th of February, we owned the city. So I'd say we won. Well, you won every battle. I was more referring to the fact that it, the communists eventually, yeah. kind of like Iraq, we went in just like Afghanistan is right now. You can win every single battle, but it's all politicians that make it at the much higher levels that decide when and where we fight and how. And that's a big difference. Yeah, interestingly, uh, I visited Way in 1998 on a tour, a military tour. And a great thing from my perspective is a battalion commander who was a retired lieutenant general. Cheatham, the individual who had been our executive officer for most of the time in the city, fellow company commander Chuck Meadows from Golf Company, the operations officer, and a couple of others. And so we spent four or five days in Way in 1968, and it was really interesting. I mean, we had relatively free access. There were some buildings and compounds that we weren't allowed into, but we essentially had free movement. And it was interesting to go over and walk the streets that were such a, an impressionable period for me and at that time. That must have been there. really surreal to go yeah, back it, and see life happening in these places where it was door-to-door fighting. Yeah, we went to other places, but then Way, although we, our battalion crowd spent most of its time in Way. And in the countryside, the terrain, the growth of trees and hedges and other things and buildings and whatever, had, it, things had changed so much. But in the city, the streets were still where they were and the buildings were where they were. And the treasury building and the post office had been repaired and whatever. And the province headquarters building was there and the jail was there. So it was it was very interesting. What was the biggest takeaway of going back many years later? There's no fighting going on. You're going back as essentially a tourist and seeing it with the same people that you were fighting with as your comrades in arms, the guys you were left and right with and walking through there. That must have been really surreal. Well, the citizens of Way in, in 1968 
a, a number of them that were were killed, assassinated, murdered by the NVA and and VC. But the citizens of Way, most of them that we were talking with, I mean, the, the young people weren't even born at the time. But they treated us v- very well. There was no animosity. In fact, I think Vietnam as a country today has benefited greatly from a, its economic relationship with the United States. And while it's still a, a communist, socialistic country, there was no resentment on the part of citizens that we ran into in 98. I sense none. That's a really interesting paradox, because you think that grudges held for generations, but just like Japan, just like Germany, they're powerhouses, even though they were essentially demolished during World War II. Maybe countries would want to fight the U.S. just to get rebuilt, like we've done with the relationships with Vietnam, like we've done with Germany, like we did with Japan. Hopefully one day Iraq and Afghanistan won't be the uh, terrible places that they are right now, but that's going to be a long time in the future, I would imagine. So I do want to mention the fact that you married Chesty Puller's daughter. That must have been a big impact in your life as a Marine. Well, I tried to minimize it. I would imagine. Uh, I mean, first of all, you need to understand that General Puller retired from the Marine Corps in 1955. I entered the Marine Corps in 1961. I met General Puller in 1965 while I was stationed at the Marine Barracks in Yorktown, Virginia, which was not appreciably far from his and his wife's. And so I I knew him then, and I started dating my wife, dated her for the first time between Christmas and New Year in 65. We were not married until 1969. I was not married nor engaged during my time in, in Vietnam. And I'm certain to say there was nobody that I dealt with that had any idea that I had spent a considerable amount of time, albeit in a social environment, dinners and things like that, in General Puller's presence. So that was must have been because there's such a cult of personality, especially now. I mean, even today as an army guy, I knew who Chesty Puller is, General Puller. But you had a wonderful, very successful career. I've known people who were in World War II, Vietnam and Korea. But to go from Vietnam all the way through Desert Storm time and service, that is a long stretch. Back just more on, on General Puller. Because of that situation, I knew General Puller, the long-retired Marine, I knew General Puller, the father, and I'm proud to say, in effect, as much as people as far apart in age as he and I were, I knew him as a friend. And he was an amazing individual in those capacities as he was as a fighting Marine. That is so great to hear because they always say, never meet your heroes. Uh, but you were able to, but you always get disappointed when you meet people that are so built up in your mind. But to hear just like General Patton, brilliant commander, but maybe not the nicest guy to know. Yeah. But and then, of course, Martha's uh, twin brother lost both legs and parts of both hands in Vietnam, Martha being my wife. And so uh, I got involved with that. Lewis was wounded on the 
Louis Polo Jr. was wounded on the 11th of October, and my flight date was the 14th of October. And somehow or other, somebody had gotten word that I was coming home, and then I had a relationship with a family, and I was directed to visit Louis in the hospital. We knew each other, and I did that. And then I flew home. I got home on the 16th of October, and I landed at Dulles, and Martha, now my wife, picked me up at the airport, and we drove to her sister's and her husband's house. He was then a major. He had just gotten back from Quezon. We were in Vietnam at the same time. And so besides his, her sister and his, her husband, her mother and father were there. Lewis's wife, pregnant wife's father and mother. Her father was an active duty army colonel at the time. And here I come and I've seen him. I've talked with them in the hospital in Da Nang. And so I'm the first to report to them. And it was not easy. I didn't think Lewis was going to live. And I didn't want to say that. That must have been the hardest conversation to have. You've seen the fighting. You've seen him as injured as he was. And to really, they knew he was injured, but they had no idea really how badly. Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, I don't know exactly what they knew. I'm sure they were getting information from headquarters Marine Corps. But in any case, in visiting Lewis while he was in the hospital in Philadelphia, Naval Hospital in Philadelphia, one time just General Puller and I drove up for a weekend to see him. And we were, I was married by then. And well, maybe I wasn't in the first time, but in any case, I got to see a side of General Polo that is not, not the public side. That must have been both a great opportunity and kind of a challenge, both all wrapped in one. Yeah, and an honor. Yeah, absolutely. We've been talking with retired Brigadier General Michael Downs. He was a captain during the Battle of Way and during the Tet Offensive back in 1968. And we've been talking a little bit about the very big changes that we've seen in the military, but also the challenges. That must have been a really foundational, uh, lifelong memory of the this battle that was one of the first big city door-to-door battles we've had since World War II, and it really wasn't followed up till Fallujah, which was totally different in scale. But again, the Marines were sent into the city to clear out the insurgents. I would only add that the Korean War vets would be very disappointed in not uh, mentioning Seoul. Seoul was a big city battle in uh, 1950. You know, I should have mentioned that. You're absolutely right. And it was the first Marine division that took that city. My godfather, it was first Cav in, in Korea, a lifelong a veteran, loved his time in the service. Yeah, he'd be kicking me in the butt for not mentioning Korea. And Colonel And Colonel Polo was the CO of the 1st Marine Regiment. And I believe his regiment raised the first American flag in Seoul. That is absolutely amazing. Yeah, I didn't even think about Seoul as a uh, combat. I guess that's why they do call it the Forgotten War. We've had folks come and talk about the Korean War because it is so overlooked and it was such a a significant conflict. But we don't think of it. We don't have the movies and we don't have the, uh, the social recognition of that war like we do with Vietnam or World War II or even Iraq and Afghanistan now. That's a, that is a really interesting point. I, I should have brought that up. So, General Downs, thank you so much for joining us on Coming Home Well. I always ask this question, what should I have asked you about but didn't? 
The only thought that I would leave with anybody is in 31 plus years of military marine service, there's no more memorable period for me than the one uh, February to 9th of March that our company spent in Way City. And there's no group of Marines and sailors for whom I have greater pride and affection for than those that I was privileged to serve with there. That's an amazing, amazing thought to leave us with. It certainly is those bonds forged in blood, isn't it? Yep. We reunion essentially every two years. It's everybody who was in that company during the entire Vietnam War. So anymore, there's there's just a small clutch of us who were the Tet 68 guys from the company. But there's a bond between us that will never separate. General Downs, thank you so much for joining us on Coming Home Well and sharing your story of this intense conflict and this unique perspective that you have and are able to share it and understand some of these nuanced things. We can read about it in books. We can read about it in news articles. We can read about it in all sorts of things. But to hear from the person and the people that were involved is something that is just quite amazing. So I thank you so much for joining us on Coming Home Well. Thank you. Hey folks, Tyler here at Coming Home Well. I wanted to give a big shout out to our sponsor, BetterHelp, for sponsoring our podcast. As a veteran-related podcast, we cover a lot of sensitive topics and difficult issues that our military service members face when they return home from war. One of the biggest challenges vets often face is the isolation of today's culture. Nine out of ten times, we prefer just to stay home. Maneuvering through all the chaos in today's society can be debilitating. So reaching out to someone who is qualified to help can be a starting point in moving forward. And that's why I'm proud to announce our connection with BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp.com is one of the leaders in online counseling and will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. So that's a great opportunity to talk to someone and you don't even have to leave your own couch to go sit on someone else's. If you go to betterhelp.com slash coming home well, you can be connected to a therapist in under 48 hours. If you're not comfortable talking over the phone, you could start by texting. They have video chat options, real time options, and you can meet weekly at the discretion of the counselor. Now, this is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online. It is someone who's trained in handling veterans' issues and can help you tackle that mountains of struggles together rather than alone. If you go to betterhelp.com slash coming home well, you'll be automatically put in for a discount code of 10% off of your first month of therapy. If you don't see the 10% put on automatically, just put in the discount code coming home well, as this will also get your 10% off. If you're experiencing financial hardships, let them know. There is financial aid available in the form of an extra discount. Again, that is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com backslash coming home well, all one word. They are great at what they do, and what they do is help us veterans to come home well. Thank you so much for joining us on Coming Home Well. Until all are home and all are well, this is Coming Home Well.